the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. And welcome to All We Hear is Purple. We're the third or fourth most academically prowess Husky football podcast on the entire internet and also mediocre, but we had to add that this week. I am Andrew Berg. Gaby Lucas is on assignment this week. Um, she's embedded with a military unit in uh, Afghanistan. But subbing for her, coming on the other side of the class is our esteemed producer, Colin O'Meara. Colin, welcome to the microphone. Thank you. Hello there. So Colin, you, if you read the blog, he uh, chips in with some dots and some pieces now and then. Uh, you've also written about the Sounders from time to time. Is that right? Any, I know you're a, a lifelong Husky football fan as well. Anything else people should know about you before we jump into talking through uh, the season to date? No, I, that, that covers it. The Sounders uh, thing was, was several years ago, um, kind of around the time that that Dempsey joined the team and for a little bit thereafter, but uh, UW football is my number one. And so being part of being part of the team here has been great. And so, yeah, so th that's, that's my first love and my biggest love. And uh, yep. Well, it was a uh, requited love on Saturday, uh, the Stanford game. I, I want to just kind of start with the, the zoomed out wide angle lens on this. It's it kind of followed the same script for most of the game that we have been used to for a lot of the year. The offense wasn't totally clicking if, until very late. It had produced four field goals and a couple of frustrating drives ending in the wrong part of the field. The defense was OK. I mean, we didn't see all the same problems, but it did give up that one. I think it was a 15 or 16 play drive at exactly the wrong time, lost the lead late. And yet you know, here we are, it turned into a seven point win on the road against Stanford, which is a game the Huskies never win. I think it was 2007, the last time the dogs won in Palo Alto. So, I mean, I went from, you know, with seven or eight minutes left in the game, just in the wallowing in the depths of my own misery and wanting everyone fired and all new players and new quarterback and everything. <laughs> and then it ended up being like a very good and historically rare result. How, how do you feel about this game? How do you think we as Husky fans should feel about how this game wound up? I think it was a really big win. Um, you know, I think anytime you beat Stanford, uh, really at all these days, the last several years since David Shaw has been there, especially beating them in Palo Alto, I think that's a big deal. People could say that Stanford's down this year a little bit or look at reasons to throw some shade on the win, not, not think it's as big of a deal as big a deal as it is, but you know, the way that UW's been playing this year, the up and down season they've been having mostly down with a lot of the, the criticism the team has gotten and the coaches. I, I, I felt like going into this game, this was a, a win that they really needed to have. You'd be looking at a team that, that would be what three and five. So I, I think this was a team, this was a game they needed to have against a team that a lot of people before the season started when people were talking about, Oh, maybe UW's going, you know, 10 wins this year or 11 wins. And, and people were sort of picking out the one or two games they thought they'd lose. A lot of people that I saw were picking Stanford. And I think it was the, the Stanford monkey that's been on UW's back the last few years. And maybe 
Stanford getting the better of UW, you know, when, when I think we were better than Stanford a few times in the last few years, you know, that was a, it was a game people were, were still when there were, you know, really high hopes for this team going into the season. People looked at this as a potential loss. So I think it's a really big deal that the Huskies pulled out a win. Also, the way that they did it, coming back, uh, you know, a, a winning drive in the fourth quarter to come from behind on the road, the second game in a row on the road where they also where they had to come back again. Uh, it, it's a big deal. And I know that the, the feeling around the, the program right now is largely negative. And people could say, well, you know, Stanford has UW and Stanford have the two worst rushing defenses in the Pac-12 right now, but it's a Pac-12 team. It's a David Shaw team. It's on the road. I think it's a really big win. And the way that they won it, the defense played great. If not for ZTF, forgivably, I think, jumping off sides and there was issues with what should it have been delayed. Three seconds game. after the clock hit zero, yeah. Exactly. And I mean, the guy and ZTF, I mean, how can he, the guy has built up so much you know, capital, it's really hard to, you know, sure. say, yeah. you know, yeah, to criticize him. And, you know, if you, if that goes the way it maybe should have gone, you know, maybe Stanford scores zero touchdowns at home against UW. So I think that's a big deal. I think the defense looked great. Yeah. The offense, I mean, we had a great running game. Again, you could say it was against a, a rushing defense that wasn't all that hot, but it is what it is. We basically had 200 yard rushers. Um, I, I know that, uh, Davis finished with 99, but it was calling 200 yard rushers. And, and I, I, I think it was a great win for them to get. Yeah. You mentioned that even if Stanford is down a little bit, there have been other years where Stanford wasn't a top 10 team and UW went in and, and even at home struggled with Stanford just based on the particulars of the matchup. And maybe that's a thing of the past because the style Jimmy Lake wants to play is actually more of a reflection of the style that Stanford is playing. So maybe we're not going to see quite as much uh, mismatch football in this matchup going forward. If we maintain the same style, um, I, you know, I, I think some of the same red flags are still present. I still worry about uh, the unimaginative play calling, although this wasn't the, you know, example or like example one or two in that uh, book of examples who's much lower down the list in problems there. Uh, I, 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 but I think one of the more encouraging things and one of the reason people do want to hang on this as a really positive step, I mean, partially because the season has been such a downer that any kind of good feelings and, and positive momentum are, are readily embraced, but also because so many of the good things that happened came from really young players getting their first chance uh, or, you know, one of their first chances of early playing time. I, you know, offensively, you mentioned Cam Davis probably having his best game of his career. And, you know, for a running game, running attack, where a lot of games we don't get a single double-digit run. Uh, he had that one, I think it was 25-yard or 23-yard or something that where he looked really explosive. Uh, Jalen McMillan was probably, you know, the offensive player of the game, maybe the player of the game, uh, depending on how you look at it. Made that great touchdown catch at the end, but he was in a passing attack that wasn't very vibrant. He was really important all, all over the field, but then defensively, maybe even more. So Carson Bruner's uh, standing in for Eddie Ulafosho. looks like he's going to have a ton of playing time the rest of the year. Uh, Voy Tuna Ufi 
just kind of establishing himself on the defensive line, uh, particularly seeing those three down linemen sets. He's going to, you know, that's, that's an extra lineman in the game. Most of the time, that's going to mean more playing time, more opportunities. And he's making the most of that. And then even Michelle Powell, who's a walk-on uh, cornerback, I, I guess if you do the math, he was getting more playing time because we saw, uh, Bookley Radley Hiles playing more safeties so that opened up that uh, third cornerback position and uh, Powell was on the field a lot I think he made he had a missed tackle very early in the game but then the rest of the night was pretty much lights out and the secondary made it really really tough for Stanford which was kind of the recipe that we wanted for several weeks where it's like okay just stop the run and let the D-backs do their thing because even if you put single coverage on all the outside receivers, we'll take our chances with guys like Trent McDuffie and even Powell and Kyler Gordon. And it worked, uh, but I, you know, kind of shifting focus back to all these younger guys that Davis's and McMillan's and Hamptons and Bruners and Tuna Ufies, what from that group jumped out to you the most? Like what, what, what are you going to remember from that? And what do you think you take away from it? Looking at, you know, the rest of this season into next year, is that do you think some of these performances will prove to be turning points in individual careers? Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, Bruner stands out. They, all those names you mentioned for sure. Bruner, you know, surely by you saw him on in on so many plays. You know, I think he finished with 15 tackles um, and 10 or 11 solo tackles. And, uh, you know, I think the thing that stands out, you know, one thing that struck me was that I think in this season, the way it's gone up to this point, having something, something unexpected, there's been sort of a lot of unexpectedly bad things and maybe, or maybe not a lot of things, but just the number one being, you know, what, what happened to the team that we expected to see before the season, you know, and that's kind of been that that's sort of remained since the opening loss to Montana is this isn't the team we thought we were going to see. And it's been a surprise, I think, to then see the, also the, not, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but when you see these younger players that haven't had the opportunity or haven't really shown anything yet, and you start to see them shine, I think that's a really big deal right now for this team is to say, maybe this season hasn't gone the way we, we thought it would. There's still four games left. There's a lot of big games left. To see young guys step up like that, I think in a way that that is even bigger than any individual player stepping up is just seeing that there's a lot of talent still coming up. Um, and to, to, to get to see that against Stanford, I think is really big just for this program and for Husky nation to see is there are good guys coming up through the ranks and there's something to be excited about. And, uh, I, I think the DBs, um, Powell definitely has gotten the most playing time, I think, but, um, you know, going back to the spring game and spring practice, uh, Mikhail Esteen, Elijah Jackson, or a couple name, a couple of guys that I remember that I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two more, but the DBs still look really strong. I think as strong as they've been, you know, this whole time in the last, you know, the, the Peterson era and now the Lake era, you know, to see so many, I think we still are really well stocked in the secondary and that's really exciting to see uh, that, 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 and now they have to get out on the field and prove it, but I'm excited for that um, to see. I'm, I'm going to maybe get his name wrong, but Tuna Ufi. How do you say his name? That's how I say I'll, it. I'll, I, I don't think we can take any guidance from uh, the play-by-play crew because he was all over the map okay. trying to say the name. Yeah, I haven't had I haven't said his name much this year. He hasn't, you know, he's been getting more playing time now. But 
you know, this is a team that hasn't really been a big sack team for a lot of years until even ZTF last year. I mean, this is a team that's had a dominant defense under Peterson, but not a lot of guys that get quarterback sacks on the D line until until ZTF came out. If you see any player get, if you any if you see any D lineman get one or two sacks in a game, it's a big deal, and and, and it should be. And so to see him perform as well as he did, and I think a couple of the sacks were, you know, in the same, they were with, on consecutive drives or they were they were close to each other. So you really, you know, you kind of got a double dose of what he was doing. Um, it's great to see. Yeah, I, one of the things you said was that it gives people a reason to be excited, and I think that's not only true in the sense that we can look ahead for these players, but it also it's at least a small counterpoint to the fatalism about this coaching staff that it seems like, and it did seem at times like we could do nothing right. Like everything was going wrong. Every position was going backwards or was being used incorrectly or something. There was, there was some nit to pick with every element of the game. And seeing that, not even some of these guys, it's kind of all over the map. Like Davis, McMillan, uh, even Tuna Ufi to an extent were like pretty solidly recruited players. Uh, and, and seeing them featured and excelling is great. Uh, and then seeing like Powell and and Carson Bruner, and I didn't even mention Dom pa- Dom Hampton, but he he looked great at times as well. You know, guys who were not kind of on the same five star, almost five star trajectory like McMillan. It's like okay, maybe they aren't completely clueless. Uh, I I still need to see more evidence over a longer run that they can win. You know, win at the level that we expect the program to win at. You know, be pushing into double digit victories, but it also makes me feel a little bit better about the idea that we still know how to identify and develop talent that didn't just disappear this year. Um, one guy whose who's talent development I still remain a little bit nervous about is Dylan Morris. He made the great touchdown throw to McMillan at the end of the game, although some of that was situational, that the defense was absolutely not expecting him to throw deep on that play and left McMillan pretty much all alone. Uh, but he had a lot of kind of medium and longer distance throws in the second half. They were just not close to where they needed to be. Uh, It was, you know, we've seen him at times this year be overly aggressive in in throwing into coverage. And then we've seen him kind of go back into his turtle shell and get so conservative that he's either taking sacks or throwing the ball away when there really isn't any pressure. You know, you put all that together. it, It was kind of, this was the first time this year where we saw the receivers playing better. We saw the offensive line playing quite well, albeit against the struggling defense. We saw the running game looking sharp and productive. And even, you know, like I said earlier, I, I wouldn't say the offensive design was great, but it wasn't the problem that it has been at times. We were kind of just not finishing drives and, and stalling out based on quarterback play. And it's the first time I think that I would put that at the top of the list. It's been on the list, but saying that that was the main problem I don't think I've, I've run into that before. Where do you sit right now on Morris's present and on his future as UW starting quarterback? Like, do you, do you think his job is safe for the rest of the season? Do you kind of want to see, even with a couple wins under his belt, like other alternatives uh, <laughs> explored a little bit more, or was your like thirst for Sam Heward sated by those two uh, throwaways that he had in that one drive against Arizona? Yeah, I well, let me start off by saying with Sam Heward and as excited I am to have him on the team, and I think everyone is, I, I have not been one of the voices that was saying, hey, you know, bench Dylan Morris after two games and start Sam Heward. I, I, I wasn't one of the people saying that. I, I think that uh, you got to give Morris some time. 
and and Heward, you know, I think the situation with him, you know, especially the first half of the season, it's been kind of a mess. Do you want to put Heward into that and, yeah, and totally. put this? Do you want to put this expectation on his shoulders of now you have to now we're looking at you to save this? You know, Husky, everyone in every Husky fan is saying we want Sam Heward. Now here you are, okay, you know, take us to the promised land. What happens when he doesn't do that? You know, then then what happens? Um, so I think. As far as Morris, I agree. I think this game, there were a lot of glaring misthrows. You know, I think that, and I've been a big supporter of Morris's. Uh, I think I, I started to see that even, you know, maybe a game or two ago come on a little bit. I didn't really think Morris was as bad as I think a lot of people were saying in the early part of the year. I think the whole team was just not clicking, especially O-line. And, and la- you know, with last year, four games, he looked – I don't think anyone expected anything from Morris last season with, with the bizarre year. And he came in and he looked really good. I mean, there was a, you know, this massive come from behind victory and then almost a second one. And he looked very confident, very poised, you know, zipping the ball into, into really tight places and and fearless, Um, you know, different than kind of what I think we saw, you know, for, for a lot of years, you know, prior to him. And so I'm, I, I think it is concerning that, that as the year goes on, he seems to me to be starting to look less accurate with his throwing as the offense maybe is is starting to improve a little bit. The O-line maybe is starting to click a little bit more than it has been. I think that I would say, unless he just goes to pieces, this is tough though, because here we are playing Oregon, right? This week. So there's, so everything gets multi you know, amplified by a ten. And if he has a bad game against Oregon, you know, people are just going going to want to have a knee jerk reaction to that and, and get the bad taste of that out of their mouth, which is a very bad taste. And they're going to want, you know, change. If Morris has a bad game, you know, there's going to be a lot of voices to to bench him. I don't think that's the matter to Jimmy, but I think you got to give Morris. I think you got to give Morris a really good chance. I think it's, it's really his job to lose for the rest of the year, unless he just, just completely falls apart. You know, what's the rush with, 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 with Sam Heward, you know, he just, he just came to school. Um, you know, if this, if this year is, it goes sideways and we lose the next two or three games, you want to play him in the apple cup. You know, I just, I feel like there's no rush. Who knows where he's at on the practice field. You know, if he has, if he still has a lot to learn, um, so I say you stick with Morris. I think Morris has, has done enough. I mean, game winning, game winning throw, you know, I mean, winning when it counts. So I say, I say you got to stick with Morris. I think that's fair. I think a lot of it depends too on what is going on around him. Like we, I mentioned before that this was one game where it seemed like the other components of the offense were clicking and Morris was the sore thumb sticking out as struggling. That hasn't been a theme. There generally when he's struggled, he's been one of many things that wasn't working. So I would need to see a few games where it seems like the rest of the situation is going the way it's supposed to go before I'd even want to give to try Sam Heward. Like you were saying, like, this is a precious commodity, like nurture him, take good care of him, make sure that he's put in a position to succeed. Uh, Don't put him into a non-functional offense, but if the rest of the offense is playing great and Morris has stagnated or regressed further, I'm open to it, but you know, we'll see how, how that goes. Like even if Morris continues to be kind of up and down, but there are other problems in the offense that 
keyword can't fix. I'm not sure it does a whole lot of good to put them there. Uh, and, and one of those problems is kind of the game planning, which has been a persistent problem in pretty much every game this year. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess Arkansas State, it did, we didn't have to cross that bridge. And if you followed their box scores after we played them, they're not just bad. They're like horrifically bad. Uh, but speaking of the coaching staff, uh, you know, we kind of have to touch on this. Jimmy Lake put his foot in his mouth again this week. Uh, he was talking about, I mentioned earlier in the intro, the academically prowess and not recruiting against Oregon, which is just, you know, demonstrably false. Like he's, he, UW recruits against Oregon constantly and players in this recruiting cycle have flipped from UW to Oregon. So it's disingenuous to say otherwise. Uh, you know, I think more than also, you know, I, I saw a couple of people on Twitter say like, well, let's not make fun of the guy's grammar. Okay. I think that's generally true, except when the thing in your grammar that is messed up is bragging about your academic prestige. Like you're essentially using poor diction to brag about your diction. That's funny. It's ironic. That's what makes that is funny. So yeah, it is. We can poke fun at him for that. Uh, but I think the more substantive issues are the kind of persistent repeated problems on both sides of the ball being, you know, right now, I think you said earlier, like people were circling Stanford as possibly the one loss or one of two losses or something. Like, I don't think anybody was looking at our schedule saying we'd be, you know, worse than six or two, six and two going into the Oregon game. And we're four and four, which now somehow seems miraculous, but is kind of a catastrophe, <laughs> like based on where the, we started the season, you know, Gaby and I have talked about this kind of at length, but what's your pulse on uh, you know, Lake's job security, but also what do you want to see from the rest of the coaching staff this year? And and is there anything that could kind of change your mind between now and the off season? Yeah, I, what would change my mind would be to see if, if the offense, you know, looks actually looks like they are expanding what they do. And it, it doesn't really look like that's been the case, you know, and it's John Donovan's offense. I know there's been some rumblings of, I think that, you know, there's rumors. I think that anytime people are really searching hard for answers to things they don't understand or like, you know, there's a lot of rumors, but you know, I've seen things floated that say, and you probably have too. Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's Jimmy Lake. That's actually um, telling John Donovan what to run and what not to run and kind of, you know, keeping, keep, keeping him more conservative than he wants to be. Who knows? I don't know. So so I, I want to call it John Donovan's offense, but Jimmy Lake's the head coach too. And, and who knows really who makes, who's all involved in what plays get called every time and the game plan going in. I do think that anyone can look at it and say that you don't see a lot of imagination in this offense. I wonder at times if, if they kind of have this philosophy that, you know, we have talent and we're going to, we're going to run a simple offense, but it's going to be, we're going to be so good at running this offense. We're going to be better than anyone that would ever run this offense that it's going to succeed. And I think that just hasn't been the case. You know, it's, it seems like a pretty simple offense. They were doing some play action at some point. They're not really doing that anymore. Uh, I think that if Stanford didn't have the worst rushing defense in the PAC 12, you would have seen a lot of these, you know, uh, handoff up the middle type runs not succeed like they haven't against a lot of other teams so you know 
Yeah, at this point, I, I don't have a lot of faith that the offense is, is going to just decide they're going to really expand their rep, their repertoire, you know, with what they do. Uh, it seems like this is who they are and this is what they want to be. It doesn't strike fear in anyone. I mean, they scored, other than Arkansas, other than Arkansas State, and I think the overtime win against Cal, we haven't scored more than 30 points in the game, I think, you know. I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, the I mean, Cal game was only in overtime. Right, yeah. and it was because of overtime. So, I mean, you have an offense that doesn't score over 30 points against, you know, its division rivals. That's in the college landscape these days or really at any, any, at any point. That's, that's, that's not good enough. I mean, as far as, as far as what happens to the coaches, it's easy to say fire Donovan, and a lot of people say fire, fire Jimmy Lake too. You know, I, I – I think that they're not going to fire Jimmy Lake after this season. I mean, even if he were to lose every game from here on out, I just don't think there's any possibility that that would happen. You know, now if, now if, if we were eight games in and he was 0-8 right now, but I just don't see it happening. And, and I don't think it should. I think that, you know, Jimmy Lake should get a chance. You know, Willingham got four years for crying out loud. So I think that, I think Jimmy Lake deserves a chance to at least maybe look at this year and, and see what he did right or what he did, what he could have done better and, and get a chance to come back next year and make some improvements. Yeah. I think it does worry me that we've been slow to adapt in a lot of ways, but we have seen sun adaptation more of it defensively than offensively, which is more uh, Lake's side of the ball. So I, I think if we come back with John Donovan next year, just based on what we've seen so far, that would be, that would be malpractice. Like that would be horrible. Like I would not understand that at all. Like he's done more than enough to get fired multiple times. I would think I was, as you were describing his play calling style, I was thinking another game I watched this week. I think it was uh, Clemson playing Florida state. They were talking about, uh, they did a video breakdown of Clemson running the same two man receiver route uh, out of seven different, looks like different formations, different personnel through the game. You can have a simple offense that has different looks that makes it harder for the defense. We make things very easy for the defense, <laughs> except apparently in like the two minute drill where we have uh, some signs of life. So I think if you put that all together, it would be very problematic to try to bring him back. I am more open to like getting another opportunity and seeing if they can make this work with somebody a little more established and with a little more creativity in the offense. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but first we have a sponsorship this week returning uh, is home field apparel, the premium collegiate athletic apparel brand out of Indianapolis. They make, we've talked about them before. They're incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs based on individual schools, history and tradition. Uh, they dig through the arc, uh, the archives from the school to make, thoughtful vintage designs like Sunny Boy on the UW gear, which is really fun. Uh, we were part of the big, uh, big new Saturday season two launch earlier this year, but the promo code is still valid. It's 15% off when you use dog pound at checkout. I've mentioned before that I have a bunch of these shirts. I've given them the gifts to other people. They're extremely comfortable. In fact, uh, when they sent us a sample shirt or two, uh, I didn't have Colin's address and they tried to send him one, but it came to my house and I still have it sitting on the shelf. So I'm not going to ask Colin to weigh in on the shirts uh, comfort level or fit because that would be unfair, but they are great. I, I definitely uh, 
a, a supporter and an endorser of the shirts and we appreciate them sponsoring us. We're going to be back in just a minute. We're going to put another uh, break in here for an advertisement. We'll come back on the other side and talk about Oregon. Welcome back. This week is maybe the most exciting game of the year, uh, certainly up there with the Apple Cup every year, the Oregon game. Uh, I tend to notice from my own experience that the crowds are a little more raucous. The fans seem to get more fired up for the Oregon game at the tailgates and in the stadium. Uh, maybe that's just because the Washington State games haven't been that competitive lately. I would say even at seven and one, Oregon's only, you know, really good win was beating Ohio State, which is an outstanding win. I mean, it's better than any, any team that UW has beaten in quite a while. Uh, but they also lost to Stanford, and more recently, they had one possession wins over Cal and UCLA. Most recently, they gave up 29 points to a just completely hapless Colorado offense. I don't know how that was physically possible. I watched some of that game, too, and it was just shocking to see Colorado moving the ball as one-dimensional as they are. I, I, you know, I, I think the question about Oregon is the, the college football playoff rankings, which are kind of a joke at this point in the season, uh, put Oregon at number four in their first ranking. This doesn't seem like a top four quality team based on their resume. Do you think like realistically, this is really a top four team? Is this a team that UW has like no chance against? No, I don't, I don't think that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I am biased. I mean, I'm a, I'm a diehard Husky, you know, and so there's obviously the the feelings about Oregon is the, the, the nemesis and the rival that they are, but I, you know, the, the winning against Ohio state, a huge deal for them. Uh, you know, it really, it really shot them up there, but other than that, you're exactly what you said. You know, they've had some close games. I mean, even against Arizona, I think they had something like five interceptions. So they won the turnover battle against Arizona five, five, nothing. Um, but, but Arizona hung with them, you know, and, you know, they lost, Stanford, it's a beatable team. Now, I don't know, is UW going to beat them? I don't know. Um, I think Oregon gets up for the UW game more than any other game they play. But I, I don't, I, I don't, is Oregon, I just saw that, you know, tonight too about them, you know, getting, you know, the, the college football playoff. And I don't think they're the fourth best team in the country. I don't think they're, they're the seventh best team or whatever they're ranked at now as well. I think they're beatable. Um, I don't, I think they're going to lose another, they're going to lose at least one more game in conference. Uh, if it's to UW, that would be fantastic. I don't know that it, that it will be, but I just, and again, that's, that's just me calling it like I see it. I, I don't think that they're a dominant team. I think that they do some things very well. The ball bounces their way a lot, it seems. And, uh, but, but yeah, it's a little surprising. I mean, you know, they're, they're the sexy pick. Uh, they have the, the flash and the, and, and, you know, the, the backers that they have that we all know, you know, um, so they're going to, they're, they're, they're the, they're the bell of the ball in the Pac-12. I think they have been for a while and they're, they're going to continue to be. And that's, that's, that's just the way it is right now. I, yeah, I think that's true. And, and to some extent, they've just been the, the torchbearer for the conference of kind of having a, obviously a very lean year in the midst of several kind of lean years this is the one that probably stands out more than any other and they're the only ranked team in the conference right now I think and they're ranked number four so it's it kind of jumps out at you that they're probably uh, a lot better than everybody else but in reality some of that is the schedule they've played so far they've played uh, the only 
team they've played, they've beaten with winning records are Fresno uh, in a group of five conference and UCLA, who's currently five and four and 500 in conference. Every team they play the rest of the way is 500 or better. So like you said, they, there could still be trouble ahead for them. You know, Washington state's given them problems in the past. Oregon state's looked really good at times. They Utah left who at times has looked like the best team in the conference at other times has looked pretty bad, but getting through those four games, I think odds are against them winning all four of those in a row. And then uh, the conference title game. So I, I would also be surprised if they made it to the college football playoff. I, I think one interesting matchup in this game will be when UW has the ball, how we choose to attack their defense. It was it, obviously stylistically, our coaching staff prefers to run as often as possible. Oregon's run defense has been really good. Their pass defense has been more average by whatever metric you want to look at. They're giving up 6.6 yards per uh, pass attempt, which is uh, right around average. They have forced a lot of turnovers, but like you said, they've kind of clustered those in a couple games. Uh, UW is better throwing the ball than running the ball. If you look at the efficiency metrics, I, I've been getting into this uh, stats. Oh, war is a Twitter account that does uh, college football graphs. They're, they're uh, expected point added graphs, uh, really cool data visualizations. So if you, if you want to look at that, it's a really cool way to, to look at a team's efficiency. It's basically like how much of a point expectancy did you add on an individual play and then aggregate that over the season? You know, like if you run the ball 20 yards from your own 30 to midfield, you've increased your probability of scoring a touchdown by X percent. And that translates into Y number of points at the end of the game. And if you break down the whole game that way, you get a pretty good idea of how successful that unit has been. Oregon's pass defense has been pretty average. UW's pass offense has been pretty average. And that's in spite of the issues we were talking about earlier with Morris's inconsistency. That's not true of the run games where one of the least efficient running offenses against one of the most efficient run defenses. We're not going to be able to feast on Oregon the way we did against Stanford. So will we make that uh, adaptation? Like, will we be able to push them back on the offensive line enough to make Morris comfortable? If there is a way to win this game, I think that's where it comes down. Um, but I, you know, I think the, the scarier thing on the other side of the ball is how good Oregon is at running the ball. Uh, Travis Dye is their number one running back, but they, they use a stable Dye already has 10 touchdowns on the year. He's getting about six yards of carry. We've struggled in run defense. That's no secret. I'm really interested in whether Carson Bruner is enough of a like earth shaking juggernaut of a defensive stopper that this changes the whole approach. Just his insertion in the lineup is enough to slow down die in the, the rush attack. I think Oregon's passing game is going to struggle against UW. They like to spread out, keep things out towards the boundary to free up room to run in the middle. That's been their style since chip Kelly was the coach, the pass uh, defense. We tackle in space. Well, we don't give huge cushions. I think that suits our defense just fine. The question then becomes, do we have the guys in the middle who can actually make tackles when there's the, they, the runners have more space? Not, not as confident about that part, but we'll see. Any other thoughts on kind of the matchups around the game in particular, like like players you're going to have your eye on or guys you, that you're really interested in, um, their performance kind of turning things one way or the other here? I think what you said, you know, yeah, obviously the, you know, they're, they're running against their running attack versus our, our running defense really, you know, that sets up to really be the, you know, the, the, the real theme of the game, I think, um, you know, to their favor. 
And uh, so if, if we can find a way, if it's Bruner, you know, or even some of the other guys on the inside, if, if we can step up in the middle, yeah, or really, I mean, we have to step up in the middle if we're going to have a chance because it's we've already shown that teams don't have to. We can take the pass away and teams can still beat us. You know, I think Michigan, both in Oregon State, I think both their quarterbacks had less than 100 yards throwing, and and they still they still won. And so you can you can basically say we're not going to throw, we're not even going to test UW's DBs. We're just going to run on them and we can we can beat them because you know UW doesn't score a lot of points a game. So you know it's it's. You know, the Oregon-UW game is one of those games where it's, it's tough for me to – What I, I, I try probably like most people to sit there during the game, you know, especially a home game when I'm there at, in the, at the stadium, and, and watch certain players. And on TV, it's harder to do that. You know, when you're at the game, it's a lot easier to – when we're playing Oregon, it's kind of hard for me to ignore where the ball is and just look at like, hey, what's that safety over there doing? Let me see. Let me watch him for a whole drive because I just want to – I just want to see what's happening with the ball. So I have a little bit harder time isolating on certain players. Just win, baby. I mean, it would be a huge win if they could get it. And, you know, you brought this up when you mentioned the coaches, and I didn't really touch on it, but I think Jimmy Lake saying what he said this week, I mean, I actually find it incredibly entertaining. I think that it's – I think a lot of people are – you know, a lot of people are upset you know, you know, especially on on the UW side because he sort of he, he kind of messed the thing up, and you know the rivalry being what it is, you know, you, say whatever you want. You know, I think that this rivalry already has enough animosity between it that Jimmy Lake speaks his mind. I'm not saying that I'm a fan of bulletin board material, but it'd be more surprising if someone like you know, Peterson would never say something like that. But even if Sarkeesian said something like that, I'd be like, what, you know, what's he talking about with Jimmy Lake? It's almost like, yep. Okay. Like I, I figured he'd say something like that, you know, cause it's just, he's, he's playing to his character. It's totally in his wheelhouse. And so it wasn't shocking at all. And I mean, the fact that he, that, you know, the academically prowess, you know, kind of, kind of muffed it a little bit. Like <laughs> I think that makes it actually even better. I mean, that's it's more me, memorable. I just, my, <laughs> you know, it makes it funnier. And so, as, you know, there's the, there's the real diehards on both sides that are just going to, you know, hate, 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 no matter what. But I think it, it almost, to me, puts a little bit of levity in the entire rivalry of just having this, like, you know, kind of this whiff, you know, this, like, this, like swinging for the fences and, and, and kind of hitting a foul ball a little bit. Like, I, I find it entertaining. And then Oregon came back and their president had a very classy statement that, that deliberately, you know, uh, left Jimmy Lake out of the statement, you know, and so they kind of had their chance to, to counter punch. And I mean, that's, Hey, that's what rivalries are about. Right. You know, definitely. Yeah. I think I'm all for trash talk. I think it would have come off a lot better if the team was playing better the way it came off. It sounded like he was trying to convince himself that we're better than Oregon. And instead it just kind of fell flat, but you know what he, hopefully he'll, he'll have some time to work on his trash talk because uh, riling up the fans before the Oregon game is super fun and sports are supposed to be fun. So, so I'm all for that. Let's uh, finish talking about the actual football and get into our recommendations. I I'm just going to say recommendations. because I don't think either of us have any upcoming stand dates to plug. Uh, I have been doing too much heavy reading lately. I wanted something really light. I found this uh, free <laughs> book. Uh, it was free on Kindle. Uh, Ian Fleming book of James Bond short stories called For Your Eyes Only. It was one of the very early, like the third or fourth book. Uh, 
with James Bond as a character. And it's just a collection of a bunch of different stories. I, I've read a few of the, the uh, Ian Fleming Bond books before, and they're so different from the movies. Like James Bond is kind of a little bit like goofier and introspective and, and less uh, like certain of himself. Like he, he's so suave and debonair in the movies, uh, which is just kind of, I think, was made that way because Sean Connery was the first guy to play him and he couldn't play it anyway, other than super confident because that's who he was. But the character in the books is a little more uh, flawed, a little more, uh, you know, unsure of himself. And it's kind of, it's just, they're entertaining little stories, fun to read. I enjoy it. If you want some very light reading, that's very affordable on a Kindle, go for it. It's called uh, for your eyes only, which obviously there's a, Bond movie by that name. This is a collection of short stories. Have you seen the new Bond movie? I haven't seen it yet. I will. I've seen all the Daniel Craig ones. They've been up and down. I, I like them, but I prefer, I hope that they kind of zig against the zag with whoever they hire next and get goofier again. Cause I think these were so heavy, like so Christopher Nolanized. It would be nice to have kind of some of the, the lightweight Bond for a little bit again. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I've liked the Craig movies too, and I think you're right. I think they have been kind of up and down. Um, the, the most recent one before this new release, I I wasn't a huge fan of. I, you know, when I was growing up, I know everyone. It's always Sean Connery that's the you know the 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 icon of of, of James Bond. But when I was growing up, you know, on cable, Roger Moore was was 007. Those were the first. Uh, Bond movies that I ever saw and and there were some ones where he was a real a, a literal clown I think an octopus he dressed up like a clown at the end of it like that was his disguise and so he really I was going to say he played a clown with, without meaning to to make a pun but um there was definitely some goofball antics going on in the Roger Moore Bonds and I've, I've always kind of appreciated that they they got a little jumping they, they jumped the shark a little bit with some of the uh Pierce Brosnan ones there towards the end, but yeah, yeah. But I, I, yeah, can you imagine? Very off topic, but if what Pierce Brosnan's reputation as James Bond would have been if they didn't make the GoldenEye video game, which turned out to be like such a revolutionary video game with the the first person shooters and playing against each other, led to like you know people playing Halo and Call of Duty online and stuff. But that was very much in my wheelhouse. At growing up at that age on the Nintendo 64, like hanging out with your friends and playing four person GoldenEye for hours and hours and hours on end. And I feel like that's the main reason that people will give Pierce Brosnan a pass for his, his Bond movies. <laughs> and nothing to do with it. Yeah, I, I feel like he was kind of meant to play Bond when he was, he was in the TV show Remington Steel before he got the, the Bond acting nod. But, um, it got a little, a little out of hand with I think the last one he did. But you know, hey, they've made so many Bond movies, they kind of, they have to run the gamut. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to see the next one. I, uh, I um, I'm a, I'm a Bond fan for sure. Um, recommendation, you know, I, boy, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a dinosaur when it comes to staying up with television. I actually something that I kind of reconnected with recently um, was, and I, I come back to this every, every maybe three or four years, but uh, the original Cosmos series with Carl Sagan that was on PBS in 79, I think is when it was 79 and 80. Um, I'm a huge fan of that. And this, you know, this, this was, uh, I think maybe some of the ultra listeners, you know, saw it when it was around, 
Um, this was in the days before cable TV when kind of PBS was all there really was. There was no Discovery Channel or anything like that. But the original Cosmos series, it's really only 12 or 13 episodes. There's only one season. But, um, you know, just a real, it's just such a, I think it ages even from the production quality of when it was done. Um, some of the graphics get a little goofy, but Carl Sagan was just such a visionary and, uh, you know, so brilliant and just made to be uh, a teacher or someone that, you know, passed this, these, uh, these concepts of astronomy and, and the universe to pass them on to other people. He was really, you know, that was really something he was great at doing. So I actually watched that whole series over the last couple of weeks and I've seen it before, but, um, but that's, if no one's ever, if you've never seen that, I know they redid it with, uh, they redid the Cosmos. Oh yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Else. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, they redid it with him. I've seen that as well. But for me, you know, the, the original one there, like with that kind of '70s feel going on, and Carl Sagan with the with the turtleneck and the the tweed blazer over it, and the '70s haircut. It's just, uh, it's perfect. Very cool. It, what do you know where that's available? Is it on streaming anywhere? It is actually, it's on YouTube. It's, I think it's constantly in the state of being removed, but there's always people replacing it. It's so weird when you can find things like that. I, a couple of years ago, my wife wanted to watch Angels in the Outfield and we found it on YouTube, but it was like the lowest possible resolution. It looked like a flip book or something. It was extremely bad, but she enjoyed watching it anyway. All right, that's probably <laughs> enough for now. Uh, next week, Gaby should be back. Uh, she'll have her first-hand account of the Kabul airport to tell us all about uh, what her experience was like there. Uh, and maybe she'll have brought Cody Pickett with him. You never know. So hopefully we'll be back next week to talk about a big win over Oregon. So thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs. Beat Oregon.